hosts of Common Sense Investing have been helping their clients and listeners make sense of the markets for nearly three decades. Using a conservative, diversified, value-oriented approach to investing, they strive to make you a better educated, well-informed investor. And now here's your host, Eric Whiteman. Thank you and welcome to today's show. We are doing the second half of our outlook today. That's the part that focuses on individual stocks that I think might have good prospects for the year ahead. If you hear something that interests you, and I hope you do, that's one of the reasons why I do this. If you hear something that interests you, then do your research on it. Don't take my word for it. You need to make sure it's right for you. Let's kick this off with the recap of last week's part one. And that's where I took a look at the big picture. Basically, I think the economy is in okay shape. We're muddling along at a 2% growth rate, and that's on the back of a really strong consumer. Global growth isn't all that great, but I imagine it'll pick up towards the back half of this year. And the market has been doing fantastic. We all know that. The S&P 500 was up over 31% last year. The Dow was up nearly 24%. And the NASDAQ took top prize, being up almost 38%. Why were we so strong? Well, it wasn't because of earnings. We'll get the final tally on them shortly. But earnings weren't that great. No, the market was up mostly because of multiple expansion. In other words, how much people were willing to pay for a dollar of earnings. And that can't go on forever. At some point, we're going to need earnings to pick up and carry the ball. In the very short term, yes, you could continue to see the market melt up. But as I said, at some point, there'll be a price to pay. Higher current valuations are negative for longer term returns. Analysts have penciled in about 9 to 10% earnings growth for this year. And I think that's too aggressive. Remember, expectations start out high at the beginning of the year, and then they usually get lowered over time. I'm guessing earnings grow maybe mid-single digits. Let's call it 5%. And if the PE stays the same and you throw in a little bit of a dividend, well, then I think you're looking at a 6 to 7% total return in equities over this year. But I'd be cautious. I'd be disciplined, and I'd let the stock's fundamentals be your guide here. So with a heaping helping of caution, where would I be looking? As a value investor, I'm partial to the financials. That's because they typically sell at low multiples, pay above average dividends, and they grow over time. They don't grow in a straight line like 10% every year. No, they're lumpy. They go up, they go down which allows you to buy them from time to time. The financials, as most sectors are, they're a pretty diverse bunch. You have the banks, you have insurance companies, asset managers, all different businesses, really. As a matter of fact, up until a couple of years ago, the REITs, the real estate investment trust companies, were considered part of the financials. I don't like all these, the insurance companies and banks. I don't like all of them, but let me start with one. Well, let me start with the one I start with every year, and that's Berkshire Hathaway, symbol BRK. I buy the B shares, so it's BRKB. And most of you know that this is Warren Buffett's company. And if you're investing, I would strongly suggest 
that you read his annual letter to shareholders. As a matter of fact, I'd go back and read all of them if if you haven't. I'd also tell you to read Jamie Dimon's letters from J.P. Morgan. But Berkshire has had an incredible track record, and I mean incredible. And that's the first thing you see when you open up the annual report. Anyhow, I look at Berkshire as being three different pieces. You have the insurance operations. You have the portfolio of publicly traded companies. And then you have about 85 wholly owned businesses. And the insurance business is mainly Geico, but they do have a few others like General Re and Berkshire Reinsurance. And I tell you, you got to love the insurance business. Think about this. You write your check to Geico every quarter, every six months or what have you. You write your check to Geico. You go out, you get in your car and you drive around and you're desperately trying not to have an accident. If you're successful, well, guess what? They get to keep your money. And if you have a fender bender five years down the road, well, they'll pay for the damage. But they've had five years free use of your money. And that money is called the float. And that's what Warren Buffett's job is. It's to take that float and turn it into more money. And one of the ways you do this is by investing in stocks and bonds. That's the second piece of the business that I mentioned. Berkshire owns a bunch of Apple stock, which has been on has been on a tear this year, along with other companies like Wells Fargo, Coca-Cola, Goldman Sachs, uh, Bank America, and that's just to name a few. You have to think that this portfolio of stocks has made some decent returns last year. Another way that Warren Buffett uses the float to make money is by buying businesses outright. As I said earlier, there are about 85 of them. You have Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railroad, Mid-America Energy, and things like Fruit of a Loom and Dairy Queen and Hellsberg Diamonds and a whole bunch of other. When you step back and you look at it, you have to say it's a pretty well-diversified company. Not all parks are going to be working at the same time, but while one is zigging, the other is zagging. And oh, by the way, they have a ton of cash on their balance sheet, about $120 billion. So. Here's the good and the bad. I don't think Berkshire is going to produce the type of returns it has in the past, those incredible returns I talked about. Now, it's too big for that. I'd be surprised if Berkshire returned more than 10% a year going forward. But here's the good. I'd also be surprised if they didn't return, say, 7% a year. I think Berkshire has a narrower set of outcomes than most stocks. I think Berkshire is just a big, solid fortress of a company that'll provide decent returns over time. And I really do believe that it should be the cornerstone of an equity portfolio. The quality and uh, the quality of the business and the management are so high that I'm willing to buy a half a position at almost any time. And I'd like to buy the other half when it's about 1.3 times book value or lower. And I've mentioned before in past shows that I don't think you should pay much attention to the P.E. of Berkshire, but rather you should focus on the multiple to book value. And that's the case with a lot of financials. I'd actually prefer intrinsic value, but book value will will do for now. And book value is pretty easy to find. It's in the range of about 165 now. So if you apply a 1.3 multiple to that, 
you come up with a buy price of about $215. So bottom line is I'd buy half now and I buy another half at 215 or lower. As I said, I like the B shares. Did I mention that Berkshire also owns U.S. Bancorp, symbol USB? This is my favorite of all the banks. If you haven't heard of them before, they're the fifth largest bank by assets, deposits, and market value. And that's behind J.P. Morgan, Bank America, Wells Fargo, and Citigroup. One of the many reasons why I like them is because I think they have a much more diversified business model when you compare them to the big four. A much higher percentage of their revenue comes from reoccurring sources. If you think about it, they get higher returns using less money. And basically, you have four parts. You have the consumer and bank uh, business banking, which is about 40% of the business. Payment services is about 29%. Commercial and corporate banking is about 17%. And wealth management is about 14%. And this business model has been working. Last quarter, USB had one of the highest returns on average common equity one of the highest returns on average asset, and one of the best efficiency ratios of all the banks. That's pretty typical for them. The market realizes that this is a quality bank and they're willing to pay a premium for it. I think a good price for USB is about 12 times earnings and the rest of the bank should be about 10 times earnings. If they can earn $4.42 this year, which is where the consensus is right now, and you put a 12 multiple on it, it gets you to about $53. So I'd be a buyer at around or at 55 or lower. And the reason why I kicked that up a bit is because I do think growth picks up down the road. And if that happens, you should see an increase in longer dated treasury yields. While the Fed remains on hold with short rates. That means banks should keep their cost of borrowing steady and earn more from lending long. Another one I'll throw in there is Capital One, symbol COF. The consumer holds up and keeps spending. Well, Capital One should do okay. It's changing hands now right around 103 a share. And Value Line expects them to earn almost $12 a share this year, which means they're trading at about nine times earnings. Fairly reasonable. Remember, though, that these earnings can be volatile. If for some reason the consumer decides to tighten their purse strings, those earnings could drop pretty rapidly. But at nine times earnings, I think it's worth a look. Next up, the energy stocks. The S&P Energy Index sitting around a multi-decade low, and that's also served as support for the relative share prices. It would be pretty easy to throw in the towel on these stocks, really would be, but I think there are two major factors that would make you think again. First is the dollar, and not to get too wonky, the dollar's given up most of its 2019 gains and is basically sitting flat on a year-over-year basis. If the dollar goes lower, it should pump the energy stocks higher. And secondly, the divergence between crude and the relative share prices, I think it's unsustainable. I think there are high odds that you get a catch-up phase in the oil stocks. Throw in some turmoil in the Mideast, and I think the oils are a good place to look. My main holding here is CVX, Chevron. 
And at 116, it's paying about a four and three quarter percent dividend. I think it's a buy right here. Now, I don't like to load up on the oil stocks, but I do think it makes sense to own one or two. And that's why I prefer to own a larger integrated player because they have what you call both the upstream and the downstream, meaning meaning they're more diversified than something like an EOG, which is a fine company, but they do mostly exploration. The upstream is getting the oil and gas out of the ground, and the downstream is the processing and the selling of it. So that's what I mean by more diversified. Chevron has both the upstream and the downstream. A few years ago, CVX was spending a lot of money. I mean, a lot of money, a lot of capital expenditures on developing new projects. Now, the business is in a good position in that they have more moderate capital spending requirements, and that's allowing them to use their free cash flow for things like stock repurchases and dividend increases. With extremely cyclical businesses like oil and gas, Right in the semiconductors, I think PE is actually less important. Actually, oftentimes it's counter-cyclical, meaning you want to buy them when the PE is high because the earnings have already plummeted and sell them when the PE is low, when the earnings are peaking. And that's a discussion for another day. But by my calculations, CVX is trading about 17, 18 times free cash flow which is lower than most of its competitors. Conoco is about 31 times. Exxon is 25, 26. And EOG, the company I mentioned, is at about 37 times free cash flow. So Chevron is significantly lower than most of its competitors. I think CVX is a buy at 116. If you want, eh, yeah, you could look at Exxon, which is symbol XOM. Again, it's more expensive on a free cash flow basis or BP, British Petroleum. But like I said, I'd start with CVX. Okay, we have a lot to cover, so let's move on. Next up, I'm going to say healthcare. In particular, the drug makers, big pharmas and the biotechs and the HMOs. Heck, even the device makers I'll put in there too. I'll start with my core holding in the sector, and that's Johnson & Johnson, symbol J&J. It's my core holding because, like some of the others that I've mentioned, it has a more uh, diversified business than most other drug companies. Yes, they have the drug business, of course, but they also have the medical devices division and the consumer products. All three parts of the business aren't going to be chugging along at the same time. No. Some are going to be doing well while others aren't, and then vice versa. And I've talked about this business quite a bit before, so I'll spare you today and get right to the crux of it. Over the last couple of years, investors have been very concerned with all the litigation that Johnson & Johnson was facing and have sold the stock off. They got worried. I think that Johnson & Johnson is well-reserved and they have the balance sheet to withstand most of the potential outcomes. And I think when these concerns flare up, if they do, then it's probably another buying opportunity. We've just seen an episode of this play out. The stock was selling for under $130 when the opioid trials were going on. And now 
it's run back up to where it is around 145. You know the drill. It's a core holding, so I'm willing to nibble at it now, but I'd really like to add to it if it came back down to 135 or below. I'll also mention I like Merck, symbol MRK. I like Merck too. In the biotech space, my favorite would be Regeneron, symbol REGN, but it's about $380 a share and it's too expensive for me. What can I say? I'm cheap like that. When it looks cheap, yeah, I'll talk about it again. On the managed care side, I think you can nibble at UNH, United Healthcare. Still, these stocks went unloved when we had a lot of talk about Medicare for all. And as that talk has faded a bit, the stocks have rallied, but I still think they offer some value. When I look at the group, I see the HMOs are raising their prices at the steepest rate in the past 15 years. And that can't go on forever. But in the meantime, I think it bodes extremely well for their profit margins. Also factoring into their profit margins has been their ability to keep their labor costs in check. With UNH, you get a fortress-like balance sheet whose earnings have grown on average 12.5% a year for the last 10 years. And although they don't pay a huge dividend, it's about a percent and a half now, they've increased that dividend on average of 58% per year for the last 10 years. Now, we know that can't go on. It's actually 28.5% a year over the last five years. But the dividend seems to be important to them, and they've been increasing it. Oh, and I mentioned margins a minute ago. UNH has steadily, over the last 15 years, increased both their operating and net profit margins at a pretty nice clip. A couple of others, if you want to look at, maybe CVS or an Anthem, symbol A-N-T-M. Look at those on a pullback. And I'm starting to run out of time here, but I have just a few more things that I want to talk about. So bear with me. I like the idea of having some extra international exposure. Equity markets and some developed markets look cheap compared to ours. And if you do think that we get some sort of pickup in global growth, these stocks could benefit more than our domestic flavors. Notably absent from this conversation has been the tech stocks. Everyone knows I've been a big Apple fan for a long time, but it's gotten overextended here lately, as well as some of the other names. And this will be the subject of conversation on next week's podcast. Software is a place where you might find some value, but for the most part, tech seem expensive. And in the software, you, well, you're going to need to do some digging there. And I'm also digging around in the material and machinery stocks too. A couple of areas I've been avoiding, the REITs, the Real Estate Investment Trust, and the utilities. I just think they're too expensive. Let me wrap this up. I'd be very cautious here, and I'd only buy something if I think I'm getting a real bargain. The market is very susceptible to a pullback now. The one thing you can do for yourself is make sure you have a plan in place. That way, you're prepared for anything that comes your way. If you need help putting one together, well, please consider us. I'm out of time. I'll be back next week. Until then, remember... It's just as important to protect your assets as it is to grow. This has been Eric Whiteman for Common Sense Investing.
Okay, you've listened to the show. Now it's time for the really good stuff. So listen up. It's the disclosures. The things I talked about during the show, well, they're just my opinion and may or may not necessarily be those of the XML Financial Group. Don't construe this as personalized advice or a solicitation to buy or sell a security. No, no. You should consult your own financial advisor to see if it's appropriate for you. It's also not a substitute for tax or legal advice. I'd suggest you get someone who's qualified in these areas so you can get the advice you deserve. When you're talking about asset allocation, diversification, rebalancing, they don't guarantee better results and they don't eliminate the risk of losses. In investing, there are no guarantees. Just because you use these strategies doesn't mean you'll outperform someone or something who doesn't. XML Financial LLC is an independent registered investment advisor.